The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning, Story City Church. Um, My name is Jonas, and I have the absolute joy and pleasure to read God's Word this morning in both English and in German. I promise I'm not angry. If I can have you all stand, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And now in German. Meint nur nicht, ich sei gekommen, das Gesetz und die Worte der Propheten aufzuheben. Nein, ich will sie nicht aufheben, sondern voll zur Geltung bringen. Ich versichere euch, nicht der kleinste Buchstabe im Gesetz Gottes, auch nicht ein Stichlein davon, werde je in Gültigkeit verlieren, solange Himmel und Erde bestehen. Alles muss sich erfüllen. Wenn jemand auch nur der geringste Gebot Gottes für ihn gutig erklärt und anderen dazu verleitet, das selbst zu tun, wird er in Gottes himmlischen Reich nicht viel bedeuten. Wer sich aber nach Gottes Geböten richtet und sie anderen weitersagt, der werde in Gottes himmlischen Reich großes Ansehen haben. Ich warne euch, wenn ihr den Willen Gottes nicht besser erfüllt als die Schriftgelehrten und Pharisäer, kommt ihr ganz sicher nicht in Gottes himmlischen Reich. You guys can be seated. Happy Sunday. Good morning. How are you guys? Oh, that was, that was delayed, yeah. You guys are clap happy, but a little slow this morning. That's okay. Hey, uh, for those of you guys who are not from California, this part doesn't apply to you, okay? Hey, uh, Californians, something really weird happened on the way down. I was riding my motorcycle, and these things fell out of the sky, and they went into my socks, and my socks are wet. I'm not sure what it was, but just beware out there. Because it's a little bit weird um, when, you're, when you're coming in this morning. You guys not from California know exactly what I'm talking about. Hey, my name is uh, Jared. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Story City Church. I am so excited that you are here. We are learning all about how to become apprentices of Jesus. And normally I have a little spiel about who the church is and what we're all about. But I'm going to pull a little audible this morning. And so, uh, Leah, if the word didn't get to you, I apologize. Hopefully it got to you now. We're going to pull, like I said, a little bit of an audible. Um, here's, this, here's the deal. Uh, in this church, um, we, we are gospel-centric. That means that everything we do comes from and goes through the gospel. There is nothing else for us. And while there are a lot of things that happen in the world today that we would love to make comments on, we're just not going to be the church that comments on every single social issue that comes up because we believe the response to those social issues is always the gospel. 
right? The way that we live the gospel out changes the way that we see the social issues. And so while some are really important, we want to say, hey guys, sometimes you might not make the connection. And so we want to connect that to the gospel. And that's why we might bring it up. It's not a news service. So that's the reason we don't mention something every single week. But again, there are times where it is important to do so. And I believe this week is one of those times where it is imperative to do that. If you're not aware, there has been a bunch of um, unrest between Israel and Palestine, and there are, have been missile attacks on both sides, airstrikes, things have gone on for quite a while. The reason this is important is the Bible says to pray for Israel. Now, here is the problem. As the church, oftentimes we get this idea of, okay, if we're supposed to pray for Israel, God's chosen people, which now actually includes the church, then that's awesome. They can't do any wrong. But that's not what the Bible says. In the same way the Bible says to pray for our country, it doesn't mean our country doesn't do anything wrong. And the reality is, is that we have a very difficult, tense situation where you have uh, governments that are warring for many different reasons, complex reasons, many of them uh, wrongness on both sides, right? Uh, the, the theft of land from people who have lived in those places for years and years and years that has not been acknowledged. It has been uh, people who have just had their homes ripped from them, stolen from them, stuff that we wouldn't approve of anywhere else. We kind of wholesale go, well, it's just Israel. It's fine. On the other hand, you have a government that is actually a government, but has ties to terrorism. And then in the middle, what's the problem is you have people like you and me who are caught in the middle, many of whom truly love Jesus and they have no place to go. And because we don't care about what's going on with them because it seems so far away, and, and maybe we don't care, it's not that we don't care, but it just doesn't really matter to us because it's not our problem unless it's, it's not a problem unless it's our problem, right? And so the reality is, is that we are told to stand and say, we, if we are people who care, from, care about life from inception until death, then we are people who have to care about the lives of those who are across this country, whether or not they believe what we believe or don't believe what we believe. And the reality is there are many people that are hurting and suffering and have been abused at the hands of governments. Uh, specifically in this case, this has been a tough one. And so we actually have a family here uh, that, uh, that we love dearly that comes to this church, that is a part of this church from Palestine, have family and friends that, are, that have been affected. And so I'm gonna ask my friend Samir if he wouldn't come and pray for his people with us this morning. And so Sam, would you come? I know it's not audible. Would you grab the, one of the uh, mics right over there? Daryl's got it. Will you just lead us in prayer for your people this morning? Sure. <clears throat> Forgive me for, uh, I don't know if I'll hold up throughout the prayer, so let me just um, pray with me. Jesus, we, um, just like Pastor Jared shared, this is, this is not an easy situation. It is complicated. But Lord, but you've called us to be a part of your kingdom, that your kingdom surpasses all, that you are the king of your kingdom, that you're not the king of America, you're not the king of Israel, you're not the king of Palestine, but you're the king of your kingdom. And your people, Lord, dearly love you, care for you here. Lord, I, I just pray for the situation in Israel. Lord, your word does say to pray for that region, for that area, for the people there, for Israel, Lord. And there's also a people, my people, the Palestinians who dearly love you. And those that don't know you yet, 
that are called us as believers to reach the lost. Lord, so I pray for your kingdom come and your will be done in Israel, in Palestine, that your gospel be penetrating through the hearts of many. Lord, I've heard many stories of Muslims who have dreams of you, Jesus, and come to know you. That just proves your love for those people. Lord, and there are Christians like myself and my family who are Palestinian who are in the middle of this war, of this chaos, of this oppression, and of this unfortunate circumstance. Lord, will you be with them? Will you be with the people of Palestine in their pain and their hurt and their confusion? Lord, will you be with the people of Israel with their pain and their hurt and confusion? That goes way back. Lord, I just pray a covering by your spirit. Lord, that the Church of America will open our eyes and recognize this is not a government issue. This is a people issue. This is a human rights issue. This is, this is an issue that declares your kingdom for all people. May we have eyes to see your kingdom. Lord, that you are the king of your kingdom and we worship your kingdom. We don't worship America. We don't worship Palestine. We don't worship Israel. We worship you in your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. We exalt you. Will you be present in our hearts and will you be present in Israel, in that whole region? And may you help us remember throughout the weeks passing of what's happening there and to pray for every single soul in that situation. We love you, Lord. We exalt you and we thank you for this church. We thank you for Pastor Jared that is desiring for us to lift our heads and not think of ourselves so highly, but to think and remember that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. you get a chance to go to Israel with us, you'll learn that there is um, a group of people like Sam who um, get it from all sides. They're not Jewish, and so they get it from the Jews. They're not Muslim, and so they get it from the other Arabs. And uh, even though they are Christians, because they are Arab Christians, many of the Christians there don't trust them. And so they really are in a place where they are saying, look, we are uniquely able to reach a group of people, and yet... wholesale, we are thrown out because people just don't trust us. People don't like us. And so Sam and his family, if you uh, haven't met them, they're amazing people. Sam's a pastor. Um, You should hear their story. You should ask questions. It is really, really good. But again, I'd encourage you guys, we're going to go to Israel next year, um, God willing, in March. And so if you want to know more about what that looks like, you'll get a chance to meet some of those very people. And I'm praying that Sam actually gets to go with us so he can share from his own homeland. It'd be pretty cool. So, all right. Guys, good? All right. It's been one of those moment, mornings already. I'm going to do the best I can. Again, there's just something weird about preaching in wet socks. I'm not sure what it is. 
but, but we're going to get through uh, as best as we can. For those of you who are joining us for the first time in a while, we are going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is more than just the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes start in Matthew chapter 5, but the Sermon on the Mount actually goes chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so if you want to know more about um, how everything builds off the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus is proclaiming this new kingdom and how it works and how it operates, what it's all about and who it's for, I highly encourage you to go check out the podcast at sorrycitychurch.com and you can see those or hear those messages again. Now, as Jesus moves on from the Beatitudes into this next section, it's really interesting to see how he starts this. Uh, He sits down to teach. Now, uh, in Western culture, we have a Greek style of teaching, and so we stand up to get attention, right? In Hebrew culture, you sit down to get attention. It's kind of like the teacher, one, two, three, all eyes on me, right? Uh, You hold up a finger, whatever it is. It's it's just a way of getting everybody to stop talking and, oh, wait, something's happening. So Jesus sits down and he teaches, but he starts everything he says here by, you've heard it said. This section has a lot of that. You've heard it said. And so Jesus is directly teaching against the things that people have heard. He's actually responding to the things that they think the kingdom of God are all about. And he's saying, you've heard this, but I want to tell you that's not what the kingdom of God is all about. It's actually about these things. And so he speaks against the teaching of the religious leaders at the time and says, what you've understood and learned from them is not the way the kingdom of God is supposed to be. It's not the truth. Now, here's the problem. We kind of get into this spot where we're like, yeah, the religious leaders, those guys, you know, I would never be like that. And we kind of, we kind of give them an unfair rap. Okay. So here's what I'd like to do to help us to have an understanding. It kind of helps us to put things in context. I want to give you a mini a mini, I promise some of you are going to hate me for this, a mini history lesson, okay? I know my wife is watching like, oh, history, here we go. Okay, I promise it'll be small, but here's, here's how this works. The, the, the ruling leaders of the time, remember they were occupied by Rome, so Rome ruled over everything that they did, right? But the, ruling, the rulers of the religious party, the Jewish religious party, were called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were primarily made up of the Sadducees, Okay, the Sadducees were um, kind of like the nobility. They were the wealthy ones. Um, they were small, but they really did hold all the power to the government. And so the, the Sadducees were the ones that really controlled the Sanhedrin. Now, it was also made up of scribes. Now, scribes today would be like our lawyers and our judges, and they were experts in the law. They were professors, teachers. And so their job was to figure out interpretation of the law. The high priests would always come um, out of the Sanhedrin, but specifically from the Sadducee party. They never came from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the last sect. They were definitely not, uh, they were one of the largest sects. They were not, um, they were not a part of the Sanhedrin, okay? Now, You had some Pharisees who were scribes, but not all scribes were Pharisees. And so while you might have had some scribes that maybe were also Pharisees serving in the Sanhedrin, that would be the exception to the rule, not the normalcy. And so the the Pharisees really operated outside of the Sanhedrin. They didn't control. Where the Pharisees really operated, though, their main areas were all the areas outside of Jerusalem. 
And so they were up in the northern areas. They were in Galilee. They were where a lot of the mixed cultures were. You had a lot of Hellenization happening, Greek culture coming in, Roman culture coming in. Roman culture, remember, adopted a lot of the other cultures that they conquered. And so Greek culture was a big deal. And the Pharisees' big concern was, how do we keep the nation of Israel from becoming so Greek and so Roman that we actually lose the understanding of what it means to be uh, Hebrew? of what it means to follow God. See, you know, we, we, we preach against Christian nationalism today because it's wrong, right? But as far as, uh, as Israeli nationalism in those days, you could not separate it from your faith because the way that you practiced, the way that you were called to was not a religion. It was called to, basically, this is how we follow God. It was started as a theocracy. God is in charge. We follow and believe him. And so the way that we follow God is the way that we run our country. So it could not be separated. And what they're saying is, hey, the more that we start adopting these Greek rules, the more that we start living in these ways, the less and less we actually follow the one true God. So the Pharisees' job was actually to try and bring people back to a place of following God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They actually had a very similar mission to Jesus. Um, The problem was, The way that they thought they were to do that was to create more and more rules so that you didn't even come close to maybe breaking some of the ones that were there. And so in addition to the written law, they had oral tradition, which they held as just as important, just as necessary. Uh, And they created these, these more and more and more and more of these laws. When Jesus tells the Pharisees at one point, you've created a burden that you can't even carry, let alone the people. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the oral law on top of the written law that they got from God. And so uh, there's a movie about this, a modern day movie about this. It's called Footloose, in case you haven't seen it. It's exactly what that is. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists of the day. You can't dance, right? You can't drink. Why? Because those things might lead to sin. You might end up someplace you're not supposed to be. You can't, you know, you can't watch movies because you might watch something that's bad and might corrupt your mind. And, and those aren't rules that God gave. But if you're Baptist, those are rules you might have heard growing up. <laughs> the problem was then they tried to outdo each other and how well they, they actually carry the law. If you go to Israel today, you will see the Orthodox Jews uh, are so proud of the way that they carry themselves that they, they actually have symbols that show how much they really want to follow the law. You'll see these really cool hats. And, and the, the more fancy the hat, the more status it is that you've been able to follow the law uh, to this point. In fact, um, one of the things is the, the, the Orthodox community has been in trouble lately because uh, they won't serve in the military. And they have this deal that the wives are expected to not only be the, the breadwinners of the family, to take care of the family, but also to handle all chores, duties, and everything so that the husbands can just study. This is why I told my wife we're moving to Israel. And, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, I'm joking. That's not what I want, honey. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Tyler's like, I'd read all day long. This is awesome. <laughs> cool. Uh, reading all day long and watching Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry. I didn't want to forget that part about it. But here's the thing. They, they literally had the, they, they have this life where it's like, no, I'm just going to study so much because there's so many laws. There's so many rules. I have to try and grasp them all and not break a single one of them. Now, everybody around them knew their zealousness for the law. And and 99% of the people had no clue what all the laws were. 
And they're like, how on earth can we, we don't even know what the laws are. And now we're supposed to try and not break any of them. You guys have to study all day long and not do anything. Even today they have to do that in order to not break anything. How are we supposed to follow all these laws? And so Jesus' comment here in verse 20, that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, that'd be devastating. Like, well then, God, who's getting to heaven? Like that's, I, at that moment, you could almost throw up your hands and be like, why bother? Why even try? There's no way God is ever going to be pleased with me, let alone surpass what the Pharisees are doing. See, the Pharisees had created this culture where people were sure their salvation from God would come when the people finally acted righteousness, righteously enough as a nation that God would be pleased enough to say, okay, you've finally done it. You've been good enough. Now I can see coming back and rescuing you. And so the Pharisees had good intentions, but a flawed way of getting there. Now, it's just my opinion. It's not scripture. Okay, but when you read the book of Luke, it's really interesting to see how closely aligned the Pharisees and Jesus' mission appeared to be on the surface. And I think it's why the Pharisees kept trying to meet with Jesus as he's traveling towards Jerusalem, right? That they kept trying to meet with him. They kept having dinners with him. He keeps insulting them, telling them they're wrong. And yet they keep coming back. I think, again, not scripture, just Jared. But I think the reason is, is it's almost like they thought, man, this guy's got so much influence. If we could just get this young upstart rabbi under our control, Imagine what we could do with him. Imagine how we could actually bring the people back. Man, the people are gravitating to him. If we could just fix his message to understand that he's not doing this right, if we could just get him in our camp, this guy could be our great spokesman. And, and I think it's really interesting. In fact, um, again, just Jared, not the Gospels, but if you look at the other Gospels, they all say that the Pharisees, scribes, and teachers of the law murdered Jesus. But if you look at the book of Luke, Luke actually never blames the Pharisees. He blames the Sanhedrin, he blames the Sadducees and the scribes, but he does not mention the Pharisees. And I think because Luke, writing from a non-Jewish perspective, writing from a Greek perspective, sees that they were more closely aligned. So just something kind of interesting when you look at the book of Luke and the book of Acts. But I think it helps us understand, sometimes we give the Pharisees a bad rap. They were trying to accomplish the same thing Jesus were, just in a different way. Now, Ultimately, Jesus' message of how the kingdom of God operated was diametrically opposed to the Pharisees because theirs was about how hard you worked in order to become saved. And Jesus says, that's not what it is. Now, the reality is, is that we still battle the same things today. We can have a false view of the gospel, a false understanding of what it means to truly follow the Lord. And when I say gospel, I'm referring to the overarching story of the Bible, that we rebelled against the king of the universe and were sentenced to death However, God himself came to rescue and renew all humanity through the person work of Jesus. Jesus paid the debt that we owed of death. He did that on the cross. It wasn't like God said, okay, I'm just gonna forgive everything. Everything's good. The penalty still had to be paid. And Jesus said, I will pay it on behalf of you and you and you and you and you. In doing so, the Bible literally goes beyond that. And it says the craziest thing. It says that we become adopted into the family of God. We're not just, sorry, Tyler, the redheaded stepchildren, right? We are literally brought in with full rights as children, and that means we are co-heirs with Christ. That's incredible when you think about that. That means that your identity in Christ, if you are an apprentice of Jesus, some of us here are, some of us aren't, that's okay. This is why we're here to learn. But as apprentices of Christ, that means that literally we are 
heirs, that we receive the grace that Christ received. This is what, when Tyler was talking today about how our righteousness is, we are found inside the righteousness of Christ. It's like a book. You put a bookmark in, that's us. You close the book and you can't see the bookmark. That's literally how we are inside Jesus. I know it. (laughs) I believe it. That's why I'm preaching it. But you're right. It is good. And thank God because God is good. That's what's so amazing. And the problem is sometimes we pass that over. We forget about this. We go, yeah, yeah, I know that. And we know it in our heads, but we don't live it out in our hearts. See, still we, I, live in a way that tries to earn my place and my forgiveness in front of God. We do this primarily by doing what they did. We try to create rules to live by. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, does it, right? But that's exactly how the Pharisees ended up in their mess too. But here's why rules are better sometimes. Because then at least you know where you stand. If you don't have rules, everything's messy. Well, okay, but if that's right for you and it's not right for me, then how do, we, like, how do I compare where I am and then I can't judge actually how good I'm doing because I don't know where I stand in relation to you? Wait, what? Ultimately, the reason that we create rules is so we know where we stand. And how do we do that? By comparing where we are compared to the people around us. Well, at least I'm not like that guy, God. They're always getting coal in their stocking, right? Like, Lord, thank you that I know I'm jacked up, but at least I'm not jacked up as bad as that person. I got a lot of hurts, habits, and hangups, but they're not as many hurts, habits, and hangups as this person. Right? I just have hurts and habits. They got hangups. A lot of them. Some of us are like, we know, we know, we know. But again, to live this out is different than understanding it. And, and, and sometimes we even, without realizing it, perpetuate a different message. We say we believe something, but we actually perpetuate a different message by the way that we try to follow rules in order to be good. Even sometimes in the language we use, Hey, for those of you guys who have been uh, followers of Jesus for a very long time, right? For those of you not, just sit back for just a second. Those of you longtime followers of Jesus, what does Bible stand for? B-I-B-L-E. What does it stand for? Yeah, okay. Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? You guys heard that before? That is so wrong. (laughs) The Bible isn't a, a code of ethics handbook. It's not a set of rules. You're like, okay, well, I'm following 75%. And if I could just hit 80, I get a set of steak knives. Like, woo, I did it. It's not an HR guide. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) There's definitely a letter coming for me. For you homeschoolers, demerits. It's the same thing, okay? The Bible is God's words himself. It is the way that we are to understand who he is, how he loves, who we are in light of what he has done. The Bible is literally a way to know God. You open it up and we say it's living, it's breathing because you are listening to God's voice when he speaks. And sometimes we open it and we're like, yeah, okay, you know, whatever, this is great. And we, right, we do our due diligence. I, I read my Bible today. We forget that you're meeting with the living God. You go, I can't find God. Guess what? Open your Bible. He's right there. And he wants to know you. He wants to speak to you. It is living. It is not just some basic instructions and we move on and do other things. It is the depth of God himself. It's a love story where Jesus is the hero. We're not the heroes of the Bible. 
We're not the whole reason for the Bible. We're not the whole reason Jesus came. Jesus came to honor and be obedient to the Father. The Father wanted us rescued because he loves us, because he cares us, but he said that he did it to glorify his name, to make his name great, and we get to be the beneficiaries of that. That is incredible. Here's another one. I was watching TV not too long ago, and I heard this one finish if you know it. God helps those who help themselves. You could not have anything more opposite of the gospel. The gospel is literally that we cannot help ourselves. Paul goes as far as to say, you're dead in your sins. How many people do you know that are dead and get up and dress themselves? If you do, run. That's freaky, right? That's just <laughs> something else going on there, right? That's a, that's a, that's a TV movie. <laughs> the reality is, is that we cannot wake ourselves from the dead. Only God can do that, which shows once again, there's nothing that we can do. God has already done it for ourselves, so we can't help ourselves. That's the whole reason we need the gospel. We cannot be good enough. What the Pharisees and religious leaders had done in Jesus' day is what we still do today, to try and live by the letter of the law, to try and create all these rules so we can try and somehow meet this standard that we've placed on ourselves. God didn't even place on us. And so we ignore the spirit behind the law so we can change the standard to something we think we can accomplish. It kind of reminds me of what happened when I was stationed in Hawaii. I really loved my business law classes in college, and, and one of the professors was, was one of my favorite professors of all time. And uh, man, he just, he made law so fun. I was like, man, I think I'm gonna be a lawyer. I was like, I think, I think this is, what, you know, and I'm called to ministry. I'll do that afterwards. Like, I'll figure it out. Maybe I'll do religious law or something. I don't know, but I, I gotta become a lawyer. And so I was thinking about going over. I was at Hawaii Pacific University, and I was thinking about transferring over to uh, University of Hawaii's law program. And so I went to that professor, and I said, hey, professor, here's what I'm thinking. I said, uh, I I just noticed in U.S. News and World Report they had the top list of colleges, right? You guys have seen that before? It's like some of you will get there in a number of years when your kids get closer to getting to college, okay? And, uh, and I was like, look, University of Hawaii Law School ranks super high. This is amazing. And he started laughing. And laughing in that way that knows, like, you're stupid. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I don't understand why you're laughing at me right now. And he goes, don't you know what happened? He said, so few students were passing the bar because the school is so bad that the University of Hawaii knew they had to do something about it. But instead of getting better professors and changing their program, they went to the state of Hawaii and they lowered the bar so that all the people who wouldn't normally pass would pass so that their stats would show way more people were passing on average. So he said, we love facing UH lawyers. Why? Because the bar is so low in Hawaii, it just looks like you're doing a great job. They redefine success. And this is what we try to do when we live by rules instead of relationship. Well, I can't meet that standard, so what is a standard I think is good enough? And we put that standard on ourselves and go, okay, well, here's my rules I'm following, and now I've created this own little way for me to do things. Oh, good, I, I pretty much made it. If you're taking notes today, this is the first observation of the day. Becoming an apprentice of Jesus it's not about a set of rules to live by, but a relationship to be developed with Jesus. A relationship to be developed with Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus is messy. We talked about it this morning. Well, who, who do I support? How, how do I do this? There's, there's, there's not one clear black and white answer. And man, black and white is so much easier than gray. There isn't a list of 10 things we need to avoid so we can go to heaven. Well, if I just follow the 10 commandments, right? 
A rich young ruler came to Jesus and said that. I, I follow 10 commandments. I'm good, right? And Jesus said, okay, there's one other thing. What's that? Sell your possessions to the poor, come and follow me. And he couldn't do it. Why? He was following the 10 commandments. The list of the 10 commandments wasn't enough. His heart wasn't Jesus's. This is why Jesus is saying, man, the 10 commandments, that's great. This is part of that moral law. Follow that too. But here's the deal. You've got to love Jesus. Over and over and over again, the kingdom of God says it's about our heart and the motivations of our heart, not just our actions. Consider a couple of scriptures about this. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. He puts the heart before the actions. God says, I'm looking at your heart to see about your actions. He didn't say, hey, I checked out your actions and you're good. He said, I want to know why your actions were there. I'm checking your heart behind it. Let me give you an example of how this works. I might help an old lady across the street because I want to look good in front of other people. The point then isn't about being generous or being helpful or being kind or being caring. The point in my heart is about people seeing me. Now, here's the problem. When I do it with a right heart, how can you tell from the outside the difference? You can't. The action looks exactly the same. Only God truly knows the intent of my heart. And sometimes we don't even know the intent of our heart because the Bible says our heart lies to us. 1 Samuel 16, 7. When the prophet was going to choose the next king, he's at David's family and he sees all these young, handsome men in David's family and, and God says, it's not them. And God teaches Samuel this lesson, verse seven. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And Matthew 15, eight, Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is what makes our trying to live by the rules so funny. We, we, we can keep the rules for the wrong reasons and still be wrong overall. It's exactly what Jesus is saying in our key verse for today. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, you can do all the right stuff you want. That's awesome. That has nothing to do with where your heart is. The standard is where our heart is, not where our actions end up. Now remember, Jesus' point of helping these people understand this is he's saying, you guys are, are being told by the Pharisees you have to keep all these rules and it seems impossible. You're right, it is impossible. Jesus says, that's not, that's not the kingdom that we've created. The kingdom that I've created, the kingdom of God is a kingdom where, where your heart is with me matters and all that other stuff will follow. This is why Jesus says all of the commands are wrapped up in the two. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor and itself. He says all the law and the prophets is wrapped up in that. That's how Jesus can say it. He's saying, listen, if you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your actions will follow if you truly love me, if you truly believe me. They'll follow. But trying to get your actions to make your heart follow doesn't work. And this brings us to point number two, observation number two, if you're taking notes today. If we're doing good to avoid sin, then we have missed the point of following Jesus. Let me go on. Let me say that in a different way. If you're doing good to avoid hell, you've missed the point of following Jesus. 
Because doing good to avoid being bad is all about us accomplishing something through our own efforts and accomplishments. It's moral, but it has nothing to do with Jesus. Pastor and author Tim Keller asks an interesting question. He says, would you want heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Think about heaven, right? No more pain, no more suffering, no more peace, no more hurts, habits, and hangups, no more of those things in our life that we wish were just different, no more uh, isolation, no more loneliness, no, no more of the things that we struggle with, no more conflict, no more war. If, we find, if heaven was finally everything that was created to be and we are there and Jesus isn't there, is that what we'd want? And Keller goes on to say, there is no heaven without Jesus because it's only through Jesus that we have all of those things. Those things exist for us only in Jesus, never apart from him. So often we can slip into a place where we actually desire the things that God gives us or the effects of being with God more than God himself. We turn God into an ATM. We turn God into an ATM. God, I love you. I'm following you. I've been good enough this week. Can you just give me a little blessing? Can you just do this for me? Can I just, you know what, God, if I just have enough faith, if I just say it, you're going to bless me. And what we're desiring is the blessing of God more than God himself. Honestly, if, if we go to God and say, God, you're good and I love you just for who you are, whether you give me anything or not, I will love and serve you because you're worthy of it. Guess what happens? We find joy. We find satisfaction. All the things we're seeking come as a result of our relationship with God. But so often we go after the things of God instead of God himself. And those things are not greater than God. See, the problem is, is we fail to believe that. I fail to believe that over and over in my life. There's so many areas in my life I am an unbeliever. My own insecurities drive my behavior. And when I forget that because of Jesus, I am the adopted son of the living God, the co-heir of Christ. I can fall into the belief that I am inadequate and unloved. This is one that attacks me over and over again. I'm inadequate. I'm inadequate. I'm inadequate. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I am convinced, church, that our unbelief in the gospel and our gospel identity is greater than we realize. It's one of the biggest issues in life today. I'd actually like to show you how much this unbelief actually affects my life personally. I'm making this story up, but it's not far from reality. And so I just want you to hear where this comes from, right? I have a special needs son. For those of you who don't know, he's in a wheelchair. He doesn't speak. He's almost 17 years old, still in diapers, okay? And so um, there's a lot that comes with that. And so this, again, this scenario I'm just making up, but this could very well happen in my life. My wife might say, she's cooking dinner. Hey, can you go wake up your son Chance from a nap? She doesn't say your son. I'm saying your son, so you know who I'm talking about. Hey, some days he is just my son. That's your son. Go get him. <laughs> hey, can you wake up? Chance from a nap. Sure. So I might get Chance. I might bring him out, and she might say something like, hey, did you remember to change his diaper? Did you change his diaper? Right? Now, here's what my wife means by that. Did you change his diaper? Here's what I hear in that. What kind of dad leaves his son in a wet diaper and doesn't even think to check that, I mean, how, how bad of a dad do you have to be to not even care? Like, would you want to sit around in a wet diaper? 
And so all these thoughts come flooding in and instantly my insecurities, my feeling of inadequacy starts rising up. And what do I do? I can't let that sit where I'm the focus of that attention or pressure. And so what do I do? Well, one of my coping mechanisms is I blame. I got to get the pressure off of myself. So I might respond to something with my wife like, well, you know, if you hadn't let the diapers run out, then I wouldn't have had to forget. Which doesn't even make sense. But my wife, because one of the things that she struggles with is not measuring up, feels like, oh, dang. What kind of mom lets the diapers run out? Maybe I did run out upstairs. I didn't remember checking. I don't remember what level of diaper. Maybe there are no more diapers there. What kind of mom doesn't remember to make sure there's enough diapers so that the stuff can actually be done? And she starts taking all the stuff in. She starts feeling shame. And she's like, I don't want to feel that way anymore. She's like, I got to do something. So she resorts to one of her, contr- her mechanisms, which is control. And she's like, fine. Here's her response back to me. I don't want to feel that way anymore. So she says, fine, I don't need you. I'll just do it all myself. I can cook dinner and take care of the kids and handle everything else. I got this, right? Now, one of my other ones is feeling unloved. All of a sudden, oh, you don't need me? You don't need me. Oh, okay. I feel unloved, so now I'm going to respond fine. I'm going to go in the garage and work on my Harley. Boom, and I escape because that's my coping mechanism, and boom, we just started this giant cycle where my wife now feels unloved, and we're fighting over fighting when it really has nothing to do with anything. Actually, what happened was my hurts, habits, and hangups bumped into her, her habits and hangups. That is what happens when I don't believe my gospel identity. Now, here's how you get out of that. It's called the peace cycle. The peace cycle is the moment I begin to feel that uh, I'm feeling inadequate, Okay, what I need to say is, babe, I'm, I'm feeling inadequate right now and that's not your fault, that's my junk. And I want you to know that I believe in the gospel that, that I am adequate in Jesus, that he has not only made me adequate, I know I'm a good dad because you and the kids have told me so because I see the way that I love my children. I know that I'm adequate and I also know I'm loved because Jesus tells me that and that's the truth. And what happens is it breaks that cycle and you no longer fight. Um, it, it helps interrupt things. I'll tell you that when I first started, my actual first response was, you're making me feel inadequate. Which is just blame. It doesn't work very well. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, if you're interested, this is uh, from a book called Five Days to uh, New Marriage by Terry Hargrave. It's, it's very good. The Pain and the Peace Cycle. Um, um, also, any restoration therapists usually teach this. If you're, uh, you have cognitive behavior therapy, you also have restoration therapy. If you see a therapist uh, that, that does restoration therapy, many of them have been trained in it. I love it. It's very good. But here's the point. The point comes back to the idea of my identity in Christ, and it filters into every single thing that we do. The truth is the gospel says that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. The truth of the gospel is that we've been made righteous and more than adequate in Jesus. I love it the way, I love the way that Pastor Judah Smith in the Pacific Northwest says it. He says this, he says, that's the gospel. It's the good news for everyone. Not just good news, uh, it's, it's not just good news for people who are already good, for those who are self-controlled and disciplined enough to have all their ducks in a row. It's good news for the people who can't even find their ducks. They haven't seen some of their ducks in years. Their lives are a mess. But they can come to Jesus and find instant acceptance. They belong long before they leave and long before they behave. As the worship team makes their way back up, 
I want you to think about this. Jesus said, we have the Holy Spirit to help us live and believe the gospel every day. We don't even have to do that part on our own. Our identity as apprentices of Jesus is made whole, secure, and complete in him. I know many of us struggle with believing the gospel, whether you've been doing this a long time walking with Jesus or you're still trying to figure it out. The more we focus on the rules and trying to be good, the more we actually move away from the gospel and its redeeming grace. Jesus actually wants to spend time with us. He wants to know us. He already loves us. And the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we understand and believe the gospel. It's about the relationship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible goodness to us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the ways that you have loved us beyond what we could hope, dream, desire. And I thank you that it's not based on how good we are, how good we might be. That it's not like you looked down into the future and saw that we would love you back and so you decided to love us. Lord, it has nothing to do with us. You love us because of who you are. And so this moment, we thank you and praise you that you are that good and that we are covered in Christ. We love you with all of us. In the name of Jesus, amen.